A scripture reading uh, this afternoon, in connection with Lord's Day 44, comes from Luke 12, verses 13 through 34. In Luke 12, we have Jesus teaching. He's teaching about wealth in particular, connects to our Lord's Day 44 and the topic of covetousness and greed. So we can read Luke 12, and we'll begin at verse 13, the parable of the rich fool. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, or what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life, or of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be there will your heart be also. Thus far, a reading of Scripture. We respond by singing from Psalm thirty seven, this time stanzas three and seven. Our catechism reading for today will be Lord's Day 44, 
Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 44, on the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. I'll begin reading uh, question and answer 113. What does the 10th commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature, and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. As far as our catechism reading. Brothers and sisters, today I'd like to uh, begin with a story. This is a story about the gold rush in the Klondike, in the Yukon, in northern Canada. And during this, uh, the gold rush in the Klondike, around 1980, roughly, the story was told. It was about a prospecting party penetrating far into the wilderness, looking for gold. And this prospecting party came upon a, a miner's hut. And all within the miner's hut was quiet as a grave. Nothing was going on. And on entering the miner's hut, the cabin, they found the skeletons of two men and a large quantity of gold. On the rough table in the middle of the cabin was a letter telling of the successful search for gold of these two now-dead men. Each day, the men said in the letter, the gold was found in more and more abundance, and they worked hard to dig more and more gold out of the ground. But these two men, now skeletons, in their eagerness to get the gold, they forgot about the early coming of winter in the northern Yukon. And one morning they awoke to find a great snowstorm upon them. For days the great snowstorm raged, cutting off all hope of escape. And soon their little store of food was soon exhausted. And they laid down and they died in the midst of their abundant gold. They were foolish. They were foolish in thinking... They didn't have to prepare for the oncoming winter. 
They were finding, they were so excited about finding and gathering the gold that they neglected to provide enough food to survive the winter. I tell you this story because this short story is a lesson in the perils and the dangers of greed. This is important for us today because today we're going to talk about the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, which could also be described as something you shall not be greedy. Greed is a form of coveting. And the story of the two miners is a vivid illustration of the very real danger of greed. These men physically died because of their greed. Their greed killed them. Now you might say, well, we don't live in the Yukon. That seems rather unlikely that that would happen to me. Sure, few of us are at risk of dying physically in response to covetousness and greed. But that doesn't mean that the danger of covetousness is any less dangerous for you and I. In fact, for us, the danger of covetousness and greed is spiritual, and it is no less deadly in a spiritual sense. Because covetousness and greed can steal the kingdom of God from you. So today, we're going to explore that, what that means, as we explore the Tenth Commandment. Under this theme, it's good that our desires belong to Christ. Number one, the danger of coveting and greed, and number to the satisfaction of knowing Christ. So, let's start with our first point, the danger of coveting and greed. In order to do this, we first want to understand coveting itself, and we'll progress towards things like greed. What is the Tenth Commandment itself? What does it actually mean? We'll start with the commandment, which we find in Exodus 20, verse 17. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, in this uh, commandment, the main word in the Hebrew is hamad. You shall not hamad your neighbor's house. And that word basically just means desire, or usually a negative desire. In fact, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, the other version of the Ten Commandments, it uses the same word, hamad, covet, and it also uses another word, a Hebrew word called avah. And then avah means something more like a desire or a wish or even a craving. And so to covet in the original Hebrew is to have a lust or a desire or a craving, hunger, wish, whatever word you want to use, for things that do not belong to you. That's what the Tenth Commandment is about. Do not have a hunger for things that don't belong to you. That's the point. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus comments on the Tenth Commandment, he expands it somewhat. And in, verse, or in Luke 12, starting at verse 13, I want to read some of this with you to see how Jesus pushes it a bit beyond desiring your neighbor's possessions. And I want to read some of it with you. Uh, verse 13 of uh, Luke 12. Let's do verse 30 verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, it's Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so someone's coming up to Jesus and they're saying, Teacher, I, I want my part of the inheritance. 
Jesus responds to him, right? Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Why would, why would I judge that? Jesus is saying, what's the, what's the use of that? And then Jesus stops talking to that man, and he, in verse 15, he talks to his disciples in the crowd, and he said to them, the crowd or the disciples, take care, he says. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so what Jesus is essentially doing here is Jesus is basically equated covetousness with greed. That's what's happened here. In fact, the definition for the Greek word of, that they use to translate covetousness, the Greek word is the state of desiring to have more than one's due, to be greedy, insatiable, or covetous. Jesus is, so, Jesus is teaching us in the New Testament, greed is a form of coveting. The two are very closely tied. And that makes sense, because greed is defined in one dictionary as an intense or selfish desire for something, especially wealth, power, or food. This is what greed, covetousness, they're all parcel and part of the same thing. Now, I don't think a single person here would disagree with me if I said, Greed is bad. I think you all would agree with that. I would, I would hope. Um, maybe think, you know, that excessive and selfish desire of wealth and possessions, is, it's an evil thing, it's ruined many people, and it would ruin your life. I, think, I don't think we disagree with that. I mean, we think of the, the two miners in the Klondike, as a clear example. Think of how many billionaires and millionaires are ruined by gambling their fortune in the search for more wealth in the stock market, for example. You can think of corrupt politicians who uh, ruin the country and usually their own career by stealing money from the government. It's bad. They're greedy. But the point I want to make in this first point of this sermon is that in the matter of greed, there's far more to this situation than those obvious cases. There's more to greed than corrupt politicians and greedy businessmen. We know this because of how Jesus continues in Luke 12. In verse 16 of Luke 12, after Jesus says, be on your guard against covetousness, he then tells a parable, and it's a very curious parable, and I'm going to read it to you. I think it's important we get this right. Verse 16, he begins to tell the parable. What does he say? The land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul. See the word soul here? I will say to my soul. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, note the parable closely. This is not a parable about your average greedy capitalist, is it? In fact, The main character of the parable is not lusting after other people's possessions. 
He's not even greedy in the sense that we would think of greed, is he? So why does Jesus warn us about greed and then tell us this parable? In fact, this man, it seems, is doing something somewhat honorable. He's storing up his own possessions for a rainy day. Isn't that something we all do? Isn't that what your financial advisor tells you to do on a regular basis? Why are we being warned about this person? Well, brothers and sisters, by telling this parable, Jesus is teaching us about the root of greed. Why is it that people are greedy? Why do people feel the desire for other things? Greed is obviously a terrible thing. Why are we so vulnerable to it? You see, the answer is that it has everything to do with what lives in the human sinful heart. And specifically, what is it that rules the human heart? Who is it, what is it that we love most? Deep down in the depth of your soul. Right? It says soul here. The point is, brothers and sisters, if you're your own God, and if life is all about what you, about you and getting you what you want, then your heart will produce desires that are a reflection of that. This is Jesus' point. He's saying, look, when you're greedy, you have a soul problem. Your soul is disordered. The rich man's heart was consumed with his own wealth and the things that wealth could give him. And so the parable, brothers and sisters, is about the meaning of life itself. What is your life actually about when push comes to shove? Jesus is saying, look, if your life is about yourself and your possessions, then it will have no room for God. And if you have no room for God, God will have no room for you in heaven on the day in which he takes your life. Now, this is still a little bit abstract, isn't it? So I want to illustrate this point with another story. A story that drives the point home, I hope. It's a story about a shipwreck in 1847. There's a shipwreck between two ships, the Shenanga and the Iduna, outside of Massachusetts. The Shenanga was on her way from Liverpool to New York. And she came into contact in a fog with a Swedish ship called the Iduna from Germany. The Iduna had 206 persons on board. And when the Shenanga hit the Iduna, the Shenanga, the, the Iduna, broke apart in very short order and sank almost immediately. The Shenanga did not. After the Iduna sank, in about half an hour or less under the collision, the Shenanga put out her boats immediately to try rescue the survivors, the 204 people, 206 people. Unfortunately, even though the Shenanga's boats had been put out almost immediately after the collision, only 34 of the 206 people were rescued, even though the water wasn't entirely cold. 172 persons, including the captain, were lost. A newspaper of the time narrated some of the details about why so many people had died in this collision. Why was it that so many died? And it said this, The passengers in the Iduna were composed of industrious Swedes, Swedish people, who were coming to the United States 
with the considerable sums of money in their possession. They came with all of this money because they had sold their farms in their old country and they were coming to the United States to buy new farms. The collision was so sudden and unexpected and the vessel sunk so soon that none of the passengers had time to clothe themselves or get life jackets or anything like that. Most of them, however, did have enough time to secure their money, which was mostly in gold. It says, the newspaper says, this accounts for the serious loss of life. Those who were saved had been in the water nearly half an hour when they were picked up, during which time those who had gold about their persons sank. It is supposed that Captain Moberg, master of the bark, had $1,400 in gold about his person. Those who were saved were entirely destitute of money and mostly clad in their night clothes when taken aboard the Shenanga. The Swedes who tried to jump from the ship with their gold died. 172 of them. I don't know how many of them are carrying gold. But most of them, it says, died because their gold weighed them down. And those who survived were destitute of everything, except their clothes. Now, I tell the story because I want you to ask yourself the question today of what you would have done in that situation. You're given five, ten minutes. You've sold all of your possessions. You've converted them into gold. You're standing at the edge of the ship. The ship is breaking up. You've got very limited time to make a decision. Do you jump with the gold or do you leave the gold behind? If you jump without the gold, you save your life. If you keep the gold, you die. What choice would you make? And think of it. Those who jumped with the gold could have dropped the gold even when they were swimming in the water. But they fought so hard to keep their gold that they drowned. They would rather have drowned than lose their gold. What would you have done in that situation? Your answer to that question determines the state of your soul. Could you die? Or no, could you jump without your gold? Think of all of your possessions that you own. Could you live without them? You see, when Jesus says to the rich young man later on, and I think it's Luke 17 or 18, the rich young man comes to Jesus, right? Remember him? And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And God, Jesus says to the rich man, you have to sell all of your possessions, and then you can come follow me. The point of that little narrative, that little parable or story, is not that the rich man necessarily had to sell all of his possessions, or that you and I have to do that. The point is, are you ready to do that? And it's not a small question. That question has eternal ramifications. If you are not ready to sell your wealth for the sake of Jesus, you may not actually love Jesus. Because you cannot have both. You cannot have life and your wealth. In the, in the, when it comes down to the root in your heart. 
Jesus says it. You cannot love mammon, God, and mammon. If you can't jump off the Shenanga without your gold, you have a problem. A big one. If you can't live without your wealth, then you might not be living with God. You cannot serve both God and money. The point isn't that you shouldn't have wealth. The point is that it shouldn't own you. Too often we think that we own our wealth, but in reality it owns us. It's also curious, brothers and sisters, that when you continue in Luke 11, because this is not just for wealthy people, this passage, if you continue down to verses 22 and downward, the, the next passage after this discussion of covetousness and greed is about worry. That is not... That is intentional. So it's not just those who have wealth that that's aimed for. Because even if you're a poor person, wealth can still consume your heart. Because you're always worrying about what you're going to eat the next day. You're always hoping and wishing for being wealthy tomorrow. That's just as evil. That's why selling your wealth in itself isn't always a solution. The problem is a heart issue. Where is your heart? When your heart is full of desires of things of this world and maintaining things of this world and having my possessions and my new house and blah, blah, blah. Watch out, Jesus says. Watch out. Be on your guard because it may be so that that desire has crowded out Jesus. It's curious, eh? We talk about worry and wealth. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. There was an oil tycoon, his name was Paul Getty. He was being interviewed in London by a reporter. The reporter asked him, he said, if you retired now, would you say that your holdings would be a billion dollars? And Getty, it says, paced up and down the room, and he mentally added in his head, well, how wealthy am I? He says, you know, I suppose so. I suppose I'm a billionaire. But remember, a billion doesn't go as far as it used to, he said. He's still worried. He's got a billion dollars. He still worries about money and having enough. Think about that. Again, your wealth and its place in your heart. That's the question. Does it rule or does it not? The irony of all of this, brothers and sisters, is that wealth cannot satisfy the human soul, even though we think it can. We have objective evidence of this. John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men who's ever lived, he said, I have made me many millions, but they brought me no happiness. Henry Ford, remember him? He says, I was happier when I was the mechanic than I am now, this ruler of this empire, car-making empire. John Jacob Astor, I am the most miserable man on earth, and he was one of the richest men in the world at at the time. Or... Another one, W.H. Vanderbilt, a famous railroad tycoon. He says, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. Where is your heart? And where, what place does wealth have in your heart? And if it rules, it will not make you happy. This brings us to our second point. The satisfaction of knowing Christ. Because we need this second point. Because the point of this sermon cannot be, don't be greedy. 
You cannot stop being greedy on your own. You are greedy to the core without Jesus. Every single person who does not know Jesus is going to spend their life trying to fill the hole in their heart that's where Jesus should be. They're going to fill their life with trying to possess and have as many things in this life. But Jesus, if you know Christ, Christ can satisfy your heart and rule your heart in a way that truly gives you satisfaction. As Jesus says in verse 31 of Luke 12, he gives us the true way. And he says, I should read it here. Verse 31, don't worry, don't be greedy. Verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom, God's kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Isn't that ironic? Seek the kingdom of God Fill your heart with Jesus and with the things of God, and then God will give you what you need to eat. This echoes the teaching of the Bible in other places. Psalm 37, which I read earlier. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. Verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Colossians 3, 1-4. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And this is exactly the point. The human heart without Jesus is restless and unfulfilled. The human heart without Christ is constantly grasping at things in this world to try to satisfy its hungers. But brothers and sisters, the physical cannot satisfy the spiritual. A restless and empty heart is quickly filled with greed instead. This is why the Tenth Commandment is so important. It's a warning that it's not good enough to obey God with your actions alone. If your heart isn't in it, it's not enough. In fact, even outsiders understand this basic concept. A tribal chief in Indonesia once said it this way. He said, you know, I'd rather have the 7,000 commandments and prohibitions of my tribal law. The Taradya Adat, it was called. He said, I'd rather have the 7,000 regulations of my people than the Ten Commandments of God. For the Ten Commandments demand my whole heart, whereas the 7,000 ancestral commands and prohibitions leave room for a lot of freedom. You see, this is also why the Catechism teaches the Tenth Commandment in the way that it does. Look at question and answer 113. Here we have the 10th commandment. What does the 10th commandment say? And the question and answer 113, you read it, and it's not about the 10th commandment. Yeah. Do you ever find that striking? Look what it says. What does the 10th commandment require of us? That not even the slightest, worst coveting. I don't see it. you ever consider that odd? It's because the, the 10th commandment, the catechism immediately recognizes that the 10th commandment is driving at the human soul. What's living in the human soul? What's there? And every time the human soul disobeys God, it's because the disobedience is rooted in this 
unfulfilled human soul that's grasping at things to try to satisfy itself. The Tenth Commandment is about desires. After that, the Catechism moves on to question and answer 114 and 115. You ever see what the Catechism says in those question and answer? Look at question and answer 114. Can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. In other words, the Catechism is asking, isn't it a bit much that God asks us to obey Him in our hearts too? How can God ask sinful human beings to have pure hearts? Isn't that a little rich? The Catechism answers, oh yeah, nobody can obey the law. Which then brings us to question and answer 15, which asks the next logical question. If you can't possibly obey the law, why on earth is it preached so strictly? Why is the law in the scriptures and why do we preach it every single Sunday? What were our forefathers thinking? You see, the Tenth Commandment, brothers and sisters, points us, this is where the Tenth Commandment points us straight to Jesus. Because the answer to question and answer 115 is pure gospel. Look what it says. The law is preached so strictly. Why? So that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And that is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ right there. We become aware of our sinful nature when we realize that our hearts are hopelessly corrupt and filled with greed of every single kind. That is our condition. That is our soul. That's a description of the human heart. Every person is a liar, as we talked about this morning. Or we read in uh, this morning. And so, brothers and sisters, you can't stop being greedy on your own. Like the Swedes on the ship, our greed and envy will destroy us physically and spiritually in this life. That's what it will happen. The key to defeating our nasty desires is to reach out to our Lord and Savior Jesus and cry out to Him for His saving power. To beg Him for relief. To beg Him, fill my soul with the Holy Spirit. Lord, please save me. That is the solution to greed. When we come to know Jesus by looking at our lives and honestly viewing the sin and honestly viewing our greed and our attachment to our possessions, when we see that and we see how crooked and corrupt we are, then we are at the point where we're willing to look to Jesus and say, I need my Savior. I need Jesus Christ more than anything else in this world. I need a clean and pure heart. I need a heart that's white as snow. Brothers and sisters, no amount of wealth and popularity can compensate for Jesus. You need your Savior. The glorious thing about knowing Jesus is that when we actually do put our hope in Him, He then in turn gives us peace and contentment. Not a perfect always, because we're still sinners, but He will give you a contented soul. A soul that doesn't have to be grasping after things in this world and trying to possess them. When you know Jesus and you live out of Him, you can experience the true peace and satisfaction you've always actually wanted. 
You can be like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4. Look what he says. I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fit or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Brothers and sisters, if you really ask yourself deep down in your soul, what do I want? Isn't that what you want? Don't you want deep down a sense of peace and contentment? Isn't that better than greed and being owned by our possessions? Isn't it better to be renewed by Jesus and be at peace with Him? Ready and willing to give up our possessions for the good of other people? It's even more than that. If you put, Jesus says, if you put your faith in me, seek the kingdom, right? Verse 31, seek his kingdom and these things will be added unto you. If you seek Jesus, you live out of him, he gives you a heart of contentment and what you need to survive. He gives you food, he gives you housing, he gives you wealth, he gives you oh, an abundance of things. He gives you your fellow church of people who care about you. Believing in Jesus, this is an either-or proposition in the sense of to be a Christian means you have to be materially poor. That's really not the point. People who think that's the point have their own idol. Trusting in Jesus means you put him first. And practically speaking, to put Jesus first is to be ready to part with your wealth if necessary. Those who are ready to part with their wealth on a regular basis, those are the people who give cheerfully. Those are people who are generous with their income and with their money to the point where it actually might hurt. This is the root of cheerful giving. The idea that my wealth is entirely given by Jesus and that Jesus is everything. He's my portion. He's everything that I need. Giving 10% or more won't be a problem for a person who truly is filled with Jesus. And so Jesus says, don't worry. I'm taking care of you. Don't worry about that. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything in this sermon, don't you want to be content? Isn't that what you want the size of your house is no compensation for being truly content. And so stop. Stop running after the things of this world. They won't satisfy you. The irony is that so many of us are doing that, including myself, frankly. You know, the decision, to be honest with you, the decision to go to seminary, for an example, that was an awful decision. Because the decision to go to seminary is a decision to forego the wealth of this world to, to mostly, most of an extent. If I had to be honest with you about the state of my own soul and that decision, it was not good. I did not want to do that. 
I was angry with God for saying that I had to go to seminary when I knew that I had to give up my desire to be rich one day. If I had to extrapolate, I would suggest that most of us have the same desire. Someday I'll be wealthier than I am today. And that desire lives and it breathes in our souls and it motivates us until it destroys us. I'm not saying I've got a right. I don't. But I am saying you don't need that desire. And that desire has the potential to destroy everything that's good in your life. In fact, that desire, the desire that, oh, I wish I could be wealthier someday, just get me more and more and more, that desire could steal Jesus from you. And one day you'll end up, as Jesus says, one day you'll end up, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Is that you? Seriously consider today whether that is you. And brothers and sisters, come to your Savior today if that is you. Throw your wealth away. Sell your house if you have to. You might need to. Just like a porn addict should sell his computer, so should you, a wealth addict, sell your house. Or your summer cottage. Or your SUV. What is it? I don't care what it is. Jesus is telling you right now, if that thing is distracting you from me, get rid of it. Cut out your eye. Because brothers and sisters, the thing you really want, you may not agree with me, but you need to, The thing you really want is the contentment of living out of Christ alone and dwelling in Him alone and being filled with Him and His desires. That's the true good. That's the thing you actually want. That's the vista of inner renewal that leads to eternity. Brothers and sisters, you can have it. Come to Jesus now. And you will be able to live the words of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Brothers and sisters, that's for you. Come to Jesus. Abandon your wealth. And you will have a heart like that. Amen. And we respond by singing from hymn 36, All Stanzas.